G'day, Anthony here. How are you? Hi, Anthony. It's um, Ange McCormack here from 7am. Thanks so much for calling in. My pleasure. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. Been a very busy day busy today. Busy day. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. Today, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, joins me for a special conversation about the voice to Parliament. In this episode, the Prime Minister shares what makes him so personally invested in The Voice, whether he got the timing of the referendum wrong, and what he thinks Australia will look like if we vote yes. It's Monday, September 25th. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, welcome to 7am. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Prime Minister, on election night last year, the first thing you spoke about was the Uluru Statement and you committed to The Voice. Why did you decide to make that the first thing you said to the country? Uh, Because the first thing that uh, happens now and Australia is all the better country for it uh, at any major event is to acknowledge country, either to have a welcome to country or an acknowledgement. So I felt like it was a natural flow to it. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Uh, we had committed uh, during the election campaign to have a referendum. And at some point, we had to have the courage as a nation to have the vote and to do what I hope occurs, which is to finally recognise Indigenous Australians in our constitution. And this issue is clearly important to you. It's an emotional cause. I want to know, though, when was the first time for you personally that you noticed the inequality faced by Indigenous Australians? Was there a particular first memory of you becoming aware of that? Well, I grew up in Camperdown in inner Sydney and I, along with other members of my family, for a long time back had uh, supported South Sydney. And my mum used to take me to Redfern Oval and we'd catch the bus there and then walk to the Oval uh, through uh, the, what was a, a large uh, Aboriginal community. And whether it was at the Oval itself or in Redfern Park where the Oval is or in the streets surrounding it, you couldn't uh, help but not notice uh, the Indigenous disadvantage uh, which was there. And so I was conscious of it as a a young boy growing up. And then a, a number of Indigenous students came to my school. I went to... Uh, school at the Cathedral School in Sydney mm. and kids who would, uh, some of whom would get expelled from Cleveland Street, which was uh, then the local uh, high school in, in Redfern, uh, would uh, come to St Mary's. So I got to know uh, young Indigenous uh, people growing up and out of that came uh, an understanding of uh, hardship and how they were doing it uh, tough 
And then when I first got elected to Parliament, I ran for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs Committee in 1996 uh, because I wanted to broaden my experience. I, I thought as a first-time MP, we should all have a, a greater understanding of Indigenous issues. And that led me to go to places like Halls Creek and Fitzroy Crossing and Wilcannia, uh, places that I hadn't been and probably wouldn't have gone without uh, that experience. And to see firsthand some of the issues which Indigenous communities were confronting and then in my second term, I got appointed as uh, the Assistant Shadow Minister or Parliamentary Secretary, they were called then, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs. And I got to meet with communities uh, during that period as well, and that gave me uh, a greater knowledge of uh, issues that, that they were dealing with. And so it evolved over a period of time mm. uh, and I do think as, as an Australian uh, we all have uh, that sense of pride of sharing this continent with the oldest continuous culture on earth but we also have a responsibility I think to try to close the gap. It's interesting that you mentioned your early years as an MP because in your first speech to Parliament you said that reconciliation with Indigenous Australians would be one of your top concerns as an MP. Of course the continuation of the process of reconciliation with Indigenous Australians is a precondition for this vision. Defending and extending multiculturalism and reconciliation with Indigenous Australians will be one of my primary concerns as a Member of Parliament. In this context, I'm deeply... I was three years old when you made that speech. <laughs> why does it... Showing my age here. <laughs> All mine, I guess. <laughs> but why does it feel like 27 years later, you're essentially calling for the exact same thing? Why is progress on this so slow? Well, Noel Pearson speaks about this in the, the Boyer lectures. I think for many Australians, uh, they don't have contact directly with Indigenous communities and it is difficult to achieve constitutional change. This is something that can be traced back really to William Cooper in, in the 1930s was speaking about Indigenous representation. Now, this has evolved so that Indigenous Australians were themselves asked uh, what form recognition should take in the Constitution given that all of the major parties had said that they supported uh, constitutional recognition from the time that, that John Howard was uh, the leader and the Labor Party well before then. And so this evolved and led to the, the process being established, chaired by Julian Lisa and Pat Dodson in a bipartisan way, appointed uh, under Tony Abbott's prime ministership and then uh, leading up to the Uluru First Nations Constitutional Convention in 2017, where Indigenous Australians decided by a big majority that they wanted recognition, but they wanted substance as well. They wanted a form of recognition that made a practical difference going forward. It wasn't just the symbolism, which is important, but they wanted something more than that. And they came up uh, over a period of time, uh, been traced for more than a decade, 
going back, including uh, legal experts, came up with the concept of the voice, essentially an advisory group that would not be binding on government but would allow for the views of Indigenous Australians to be put forward so that they would have a voice and parliament and government could listen to that voice in order to achieve better outcomes. Mm. So that voice that you're describing, it is a simple proposal. It's an advisory body, as you said. Why are so many Australians not understanding it? Well, I think originally the the concept of a voice does need some explanation. Like, what's a voice? Don't we all have a voice? So it, it needs explaining. And it's been explained as well that the reason why it wasn't just called an advisory group was they wanted to make it clear what it was that Indigenous people wanted to be listened to and that is why the language was was chosen. It arose from those discussions and dialogue between uh, Indigenous communities. And I think it is unfortunate that we're seeing so much misinformation out there. It's, it's so easy to ask uh, questions that are never asked uh, about other issues and then uh, if there's an answer, it just leads to more questions mm. uh, because the objective is to sow doubt and to sow confusion. I mean, there's been a conscious campaign by some uh, supporters of the No campaign to create confusion. That has been a, a strategy and even the slogan of if you don't know, vote no is really an indictment uh, on it's really saying don't bother to find out. It's not a responsible thing in a democracy mm. to say. But we've had that line come from the opposition for a while. Isn't it your job and the Yes campaign's job to counter that message and cut through and simply explain what the voice is? Why isn't that working? Well, we have been doing that and we'll continue to do that. One of the things that uh, will occur, of course, is that Australians will focus and are focusing. I uh, just this afternoon, been out doing a streetwalk uh, with uh, Dean Parkin from the, the Yes campaign, with the Labor people, with Liberals for Yes uh, in Norwood in Adelaide. And uh, the response was very positive. But I'm confident that when Australians focus on what the actual question is, and the question is very clear, the first bit is, of course, uh, asking for the recognition, and it, it simply says, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia. Then it says the what, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. And then what will it do? Well, it may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and then the how. That's so important as well, including a clear declaration of the primacy of Parliament. Uh, the Parliament shall have power to make laws with regard to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the voice. So there's nothing to fear by this proposition. It's not going to change the way that government functions uh, in this country. But what it will do, what it will do is enable uh, the voice of Indigenous Australians to be heard and that will, I'm very confident, lead to better outcomes because we know that when 
any group is consulted about matters that directly affect them, then you get better outcomes. Common sense tells you that. Coming up after the break, does the Prime Minister regret the timing of the referendum? As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Some people say it doesn't go far enough, is what some of the perspective is. Uh, They say this isn't enough uh, because it is a modest request. It isn't about special places in Parliament. It retains completely the primacy of the parliament to make decisions, parliament and government. But what it does do is ensure that advice can be given. Advice can be given. That is all that it it requires, and that is a modest request on top of... One of the things you've said is that the voice is modest, right? It won't get a say on Australia Day. It won't be a funding body and so on. Is that messaging of minimising effectively the voice's impact actually undermining the yes camp? You know, if it is so modest, doesn't that enable people to vote no because it implies that it's not a big deal? Uh, No, I don't think that's right. It's about putting forward accurately what it will do. Now, it may give advice on a range of issues, as other bodies can give advice. Uh, But the idea, uh, to make two points, the idea that they're going to be giving advice to the Reserve Bank. I mean, I can't give advice to the Reserve Bank. Well, I can, but they don't have to listen to it uh, when it comes to uh, interest rate decisions. And that's been one of the things that's been said. It's been spoken about there'll be new taxes, there'll be mm. impact on people's land and, and, and ownership, and, and that's before you get to the massive conspiracy theories about the, the UN or, or other issues. The point is here that this is what Indigenous Australians themselves have asked for. They're confident that if there is a voice, then they will give advice that is accurate, that will make a difference on matters that they will concentrate on, which is closing the gap on life expectancy, the eight-year gap that's there, closing the gap on education outcomes, on justice outcomes. And we know from experience that when Indigenous Australians have been engaged and recently, of course, during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was fears of catastrophic consequences for Indigenous Australians' health. And that got turned around once Indigenous communities had agency over the rollout of vaccinations, over the information campaigns, Uh, rather than decisions being just made in Canberra. Uh, We see it with justice reinvestment in Burke. We see it with health outcomes in Cape York. We see it with education, with kids going to school in Arnhem Land. When decisions are made with the direct input 
of Indigenous Australians. They're the success stories. The Indigenous Rangers programs is a great success story uh, because it's arisen from Indigenous Australians themselves. Uh, not with the best of intentions, decisions have been made in Canberra for 122 years, but uh, we haven't seen a closing of the gap in, in recent years. And if we do the same thing, we should expect the same outcomes. And that's why uh, giving Indigenous Australians a say uh, will be so important. Prime Minister, you said this is a once-in-a-generation moment, so the timing of this vote is crucial. And this referendum is happening while so many people can't think about anything other than their rent, mortgage, paying bills, affording groceries. Do you regret scheduling the vote during a cost-of-living crisis? No, I, I put out very early on so that there was certainty going forward a, a timetable. I got elected last May... There are people who have worked on this campaign, of course, for more than more than a decade and for many have given their long lives to this campaign. People like Pat Dodson and Tom Carmer and Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson. Mm. And there isn't one person at the Gama Festival where I was recently who was saying, oh, you know, can we change the timetable here? So I went to Gama a bit over a month after I was elected as Prime Minister, I put out a draft of the uh, wording uh, for the constitutional change and encouraged people to participate. We established a referendum working group. We established a timetable so that everything was designed to try to get as much and as broad a support as possible. Now, when when Peter Dutton appointed Julian Lisa as Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, one would have thought that was a positive sign given his involvement in this question going back as far as 2012. And that's why I took that as a positive sign. Uh, we had a process. Uh, I met with Peter Dutton on at least seven occasions to discuss getting broad support for it. The National Party declared their opposition from the beginning and in the end the Liberal Party uh, under Peter Dutton declared his opposition just a couple of days after they lost the Aston by-election and after commentary was that they saw this as a way of securing a political advantage, uh, a partisan advantage over the Labor government. Now, that is something that is a decision that they made, but we had a very clear timetable. I said that we had the referendum working group would produce draft legislation that would be agreed with the Cabinet uh, that occurred in March, and then I said there'd be a three-month uh, inquiry. Mm. Um, we did all of those processes, but this has gone on for a long period of time. And I said at my first Gama speech, I said, if not now, when? Mm. Uh, and there, there will always be something. And this was also a timetable established when there weren't state or territory elections, which is very unusual that we're going through a period now where we're not in an election timetable somewhere, given we have eight uh, states and territories, six states, two territories, and the federal government. So we have nine elections and the fact that there's none on at the moment was uh, designed to provide 
some clear air. Mm. But also what is important is that we're sticking to what we said we would do, and that's something that, that I want to characterise my government, to restore faith in the way that politics is conducted. Had we walked away from the commitment and said, oh, well, it's, it's all too hard, uh, we'll defer it for this term and we'll do it in the second term, then for those people who had put all of their energy and commitment and passion into this cause, there's a limit to how long you can do that for when uh, political leaders don't have the courage of being prepared to put it to the Australian people with no certainty about outcome, but there was never going to be certainty about an outcome when you were trying to change the constitution. But if you don't advance the question, then you'd be in the same position. No recognition, no voice, uh, nothing moving forward. Prime Minister, if Australia votes yes on October 14, what country will we wake up to the next morning? What will it mean for us? We'll wake up to a more unified country, one that has shown respect for the oldest continuous culture on earth, one that is more confident about ourselves and feels better about ourselves, and one which the world can look at and see a more mature nation coming to terms with the fullness and richness of its history. I think just like the apology uh, for stolen generations, uh, like the vote on marriage equality, it will just feel like a great country has become just that little bit greater. Prime Minister, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, Lachlan Murdoch is set to become the sole chairman of both Fox Corporation and News Corp, And in one of his first moves, he's backed the appointment of former Prime Minister Tony Abbott to Fox's board. The Murdoch-owned Fox Corporation includes American TV businesses like Fox News and Fox Sports. And in a press release, Lachlan said Tony Abbott would bring skills, experience and perspectives that will contribute to the board and benefit Fox. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has announced the government will introduce a so-called skills passport for workers and employers, committing $9 million to the project. The new digital system, which will work like the Medicare app, will be a record of qualifications and certifications that workers can share with potential employers. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back again tomorrow.